from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi there, is the mayor in? Marissa Lang with The Washington Post. Hey, it's Dossie. I wanted to pick your brain on the truck. Hi, my name is Jenna Johnson. I'm this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, July 15th. Today, the changing realities for people seeking asylum in the U.S., the latest legal threat to the Affordable Care Act, and the surprising star of a new Olympic sport. The ICE raids were very successful. People came into our country illegally. Illegally. On Monday, President Trump claimed a victory. He told reporters that immigration raids happened across the country over the weekend. ICE has launched what it calls the family operation. That's Nick Miroff. He covers immigration for The Post. Targeting up to 2,000 families in major cities across the United States. But Nick's reporting suggests that these mass raids didn't actually happen. We had many people. It was a very successful day. But you didn't see a lot of it because it was done a lot. You'll speak to them. And I'm not even sure they should be telling you, but it was a lot. The president said that the operation was going to begin on Sunday, part of his goal of deporting millions of people from the country. But there was little evidence of any major large-scale activity on the streets. There was a lot of fear, of course. A lot of people stayed indoors in many immigrant neighborhoods and communities. But what we did not see was large numbers of ICE officers out in force, knocking on doors and picking people up. It doesn't mean that it won't happen, and I'm assured that this operation is going to go forward and technically is already underway. But I think the agency, out of concern for, in particular, for all the attention that this has gotten, I think they're trying to take it a little slower and operate a little bit more under the radar in particular after an attempted attack on an ICE facility in Tacoma, Washington on Saturday, in which a 69-year-old man attempted to blow up the, the center and, and was killed by officers. To ICE officials, it was an indication of just how intense the emotions are running and the, the potential danger that that poses for their workforce. So in the middle of this pretty heated environment when it comes to things happening on immigration, the Trump administration is also announcing new rules related to asylum seekers. What was this announcement and what does it mean? So the Trump administration has announced its intentions to publish tomorrow a new, what they call uh, interim final rule in the federal register. That is the first step toward the implementation of, of basically, an, an, you know, in this case, an executive action. And what it would do is significantly raise the bar to qualifying for asylum in the United States. And what it would do is not, you know, completely foreclose the possibility of, of getting asylum, but it would, for anybody who had crossed through another country and route to the United States, if they did not seek asylum in that country, then that would potentially disqualify them from being able to apply in the United States. So the idea is that people who are seeking asylum, who are seeking a dangerous situation in their home country, should be trying to apply for asylum anywhere that they get to rather than just seeking solely to come to the United States. That's right. The argument being that you can't sort of shop around for the place that you want to apply for asylum. You should go to the first place where you're safe and, and seek protection there. Potentially, how quickly would this change be put into effect? 
Well, this change is going to take effect immediately, but we've also spoken to attorneys for the ACLU who said they are going to challenge this in court immediately. Just to give you an example of how this could potentially work, if somebody from El Salvador transited through Guatemala and Mexico and then came to the U.S. border and sought asylum, the fact that they did not apply in Guatemala and Mexico would count against them and and potentially disqualify them from receiving that protection. The problem is that many countries, including Mexico and Guatemala, are not safe, at least according you know, to the United States' own State Department travel warnings. So there are places, for example, across U.S.-Mexico border, Mexican border cities, where um, State Department personnel have significant travel restrictions. And so there are major concerns about the safety of sending back potential asylum seekers to locations where they would be vulnerable to kidnapping, extortion, sexual assault, and so on. One of the places where there are concerns about the safety of asylum seekers is Nuevo Laredo, Mexico. Kevin Seif is the Latin America correspondent for The Post. I went to Nuevo Laredo, which is a city in northern Mexico, where the U.S. government has just expanded a policy known as the Migrant Protection Protocols, or REMAIN in Mexico. That program is another part of the administration's strategy to slow the flow of Central American refugees to the U.S. Last week, the U.S. sent its first group of asylum seekers there to wait for their hearings. I mean, Nuevo Laredo is a really is a really dangerous place. It's a place where drug cartels have operated with impunity for many years. The U.S. government says that asylum seekers who wait in Mexico for their court hearing are supposed to be processed faster than people who wait in the U.S. But some people say that outsourcing our asylum process to Mexico is problematic. It's a place where the the local and state governments don't have complete control over what happens. And so the idea that the U.S. would be forcing asylum seekers to wait there is really controversial and really worrying for a lot of human rights officials and a lot of Mexican officials who who wonder how asylum seekers will, will stay safe there. So when you went there, what was it like? I mean, so it was it was strange because we knew that at some point the U.S. was going to begin implementing this policy in the city, but we didn't know exactly when. The U.S. hadn't confirmed with Mexican officials when the policy was going to start. And so it was just this sort of strange waiting game where we didn't know when or if it was going to happen. And then suddenly we got this call from a source saying they're about to send people back. And so we ran to the international bridge that connects Laredo, Texas to Nuevo Laredo. I was really curious how how the Mexican officials were going to handle this, whether they were going to give them armed escorts, if they were going to take them directly to a special shelter. And so I was waiting to see what was going to happen. And then the door opened from the office and they were just sort of told to leave. And I was really shocked. You know, they were just wandering around the city. The family that I was with was a Venezuelan family, two young parents with two young boys, six and eight years old. And they just had no idea where to go. So they were just wandering around. I was following them around. 
and we were talking as they were walking and they were like literally just didn't know what to do, where to go, where to find shelter, where to find food. The kids were complaining that they were hungry. It was a hundred and like two degrees. Um, so it was, it was not what I expected to see. Um, I mean, what I took away from that, at least at this point was that, you know, in this really dangerous place, the, at least on the Mexican side, there's a total lack of, of preparedness to, to protect and and offer shelter to the people who are sent back. So who is this family and why were they seeking asylum on, on the U.S. border? So this Venezuelan family, I mean, in a lot of ways, they're really a textbook asylum case. The the father is named Jose Luis Romero. He and the rest of his family were a middle class Venezuelan family. As Venezuela has has descended into chaos and as, as it's been harder to buy groceries or medicine or any basic products, Jose Luis's family have suffered the same way that that a lot of Venezuelan families have suffered. And and ultimately they got to a point where they knew they just needed to leave. And so in January of this year, they left Venezuela. And again, this is like, I think a lot of people assume that all migrants take the same journey to the U.S. border, but it's not true. I mean, there are real, there are differences in the way that people get here. So Jose Luis and his family, they had, they had, they had means, you know, they had more money than your average Central American migrant. So they took a flight from Caracas to Cancun, Mexico, and then another flight from Cancun to Mexico City and then a bus from Mexico City to Nuevo Laredo. And for the last month and a half, when they were waiting to cross the border for their asylum hearing, they stayed in an apartment. So, I mean, there, there is no question that there are sort of, you know, gradations of privilege. When we look at this this large pool of migrants, not everyone is, is, is making the same journey in the same way. But the thing the thing that's really scary for Jose Luis and his family is, you know, word has gotten out within these smuggling networks within cities like Nuevo Laredo that the Venezuelans have more money than the Guatemalans. And so if you're going to kidnap someone, if you're going to extort someone, target the Venezuelans. This is like a known thing in Nuevo Laredo. And you can tell who the Venezuelans are because they have different accents. Often they look a little bit different. They dress differently. And so, I mean, that has just like sent a total you know, this just sense of fear throughout the Venezuelan migrant community and through Jose Luis's family. And so when they were waiting before, they didn't leave the house, they didn't leave the apartment, um, the kids weren't allowed to open the door. Um, I mean, so we're talking about like months where these little kids were not allowed to leave this little room where they were waiting. And so when they got this call saying, okay, your name is your name has been called, you know, it's your turn to begin your asylum hearing. There was like this feeling of ecstasy, like the whole family was like, finally, we're out of this like little one room apartment where we've been waiting for so long. The kids were really excited. And then at the end of the day, they were told, OK, well, we're sending you back to Mexico. And you can imagine like what that felt like for that family. When they got to the U.S. border and w- with the expectation or at least the hope that they would be able to enter the U.S. and wait for an asylum hearing, what was their reaction when they were told that they were part of this new program where people get immediately sent to Mexico? Yeah, I mean, that's another thing that surprised me is that I assumed that they would have been told that relatively early on in the process, like before they crossed into the U.S. side. But actually, they weren't told that until right before they were sent back to Mexico. Hmm. 
And I asked Jose Luis that question, um, you know, how did it feel? And he basically just started crying. I mean, it, like he was just totally shocked and I think bewildered too. Like, why would I have to go back to that place? So how are Mexican officials responding to this? And do they have some kind of plan in place for people like Jose Luis and his family about like how they're supposed to get through this and continue pursuing their asylum case? So I think it's important to take a step back and, you know, just just remind people that what happened over the last month is that President Trump threatened to implement really significant tariffs on Mexico if Mexico didn't crack down on immigration. And so over the course of basically a week, there were these frantic negotiations between Mexican officials and U.S. officials about how what role Mexico was going to play in stopping migration. And ultimately, the Mexican federal government and and the U.S. government came to an agreement. Part of that agreement was that this program, the Migrant Protection Protocols, MPP as it's known, would be expanded broadly across the border. Um, And so this was, again, an agreement between two central governments. But the problem was that the people who were sent back to Mexico under MPP are sent back only to border states like Tamaulipas. Hmm. But because there there are big problems in Mexico about distributing funds between the central government and the state governments, the state governments said, "Okay, well, you just signed a deal with the Trump administration that will inevitably lead to tens of thousands of migrants being sent back to border states. But what resources are you giving us to, to provide shelter for them, food for them, anything for them? And the federal government hasn't answered that question. Hmm. And so that's created this huge tension between state governments in Mexico and the federal government. That the, that the leaders in, in the border states are frustrated because they say, like, you've given us this huge problem and you haven't provided any way for us to deal with this problem. Right. Exactly. Um, and that may sound kind of like, oh, it's sort of like an in-the-weeds domestic problem in Mexico, but it has real it has real consequences for these migrants. So for example, in Tamaulipas, in the state where Jose Luis was just returned, they are now talking about shipping migrants from their state further south to the state of Nuevo Leon. And so the idea that, you know, it's already difficult to find a home in in Nuevo Laredo, all of a sudden you're going to be forced to get on a bus and go further south to a small town and kind of in the middle of nowhere in northern Mexico. I mean, that's like just makes things even more complicated. But ultimately, the way this is going to play out is that, I mean, the state governments in Mexico can determine what they will and won't do. So they could unilaterally decide, you know what, we're just not going to invest in shelters hmm. you know, or we're going to close all of our own shelters. And then, you know, migrants can figure things out for themselves or they can choose to, to go further south. I mean, so what these states decide to do. Um, and as of now, they're basically operating unilaterally without without the assistance of the federal government. It has a real impact on asylum seekers who are looking for refuge in the U.S. If the original reasoning behind the conception of this of this Remain in Mexico program, at least on the part of the the Trump administration, is to deter people from crossing the border because they will know that they might just get sent back to Mexico. Is that having an effect on the number of people who want to come and try to seek asylum in the U.S.? I mean, we we saw this last month that the the number of apprehensions, people crossing the border went down. And ultimately, I mean, I've done a lot of reporting in the places where asylum seekers are leaving from, you know, especially in Guatemala. And I do think 
if indeed it's impossible for asylum seekers to cross into the U.S. within a couple of months and spend that two or three year period in the U.S. while they await their their hearings. Yeah, I mean, I think that will deter some people. But like, let's look at Jose Luis. I mean, he was going to leave Venezuela no matter what. There, there was no U.S. policy that was going to change Jose Luis's mind. And there are a lot of people like Jose Luis. They're not all Venezuelan. Some of them are Salvadoran or Honduran or Guatemalan. Some of them are Nicaraguan. And those are people who, you know, no matter what the Trump administration does, they're still going to come. Maybe Jose Luis would have chosen to go to Colombia instead. A lot of Venezuelans are doing that. But we're talking about a family that has strong relatives waiting for them in Florida, strong connections to the U.S. I mean, my sense was that they were going to come no matter what. Kevin Seif is the Latin America correspondent for The Washington Post. Nick Miroff covers immigration enforcement for The Post. After multiple challenges to this law before the Supreme Court, the Affordable Care Act is here to stay. The Affordable Care Act is a law that's been under one kind of threat or another almost since it was passed by a Democratic Congress in 2010. Amy Goldstein is a national health care policy writer at The Post. This is the latest legal threat in the courts. There have been others. Earlier lawsuits made it all the way up to the Supreme Court, which in both 2012 and 2015 upheld most of the law. Because of this law and because of today's decision, millions of Americans who I hear from every single day will continue to receive the tax credits that have given about 8 in 10 people who buy insurance on the new marketplaces the choice of a health care plan that costs less than $100 a month. The point is, this is not an abstract thing anymore. This is not a set of political talking points. This is reality. So you've been writing for a while about all of the different legal challenges to the Affordable Care Act. What is this case about? This lawsuit was filed in February of 2018 by a group of Republican attorneys general. And they filed this case based on a tax law that the Republican Congress had adopted just two months earlier in December 2017. And that law had one big effect on the ACA. It said that starting actually this past winter, people would no longer face the threat of a tax penalty if they did not carry health insurance as this health care law requires. And that had been a big part of Obamacare, the fact that it basically almost forced you to get health care and that if you didn't get health care, you would have to pay a tax to the government for not having it. That's right. People had a choice between either buying health insurance or paying this tax penalty. And that tax penalty is important legally because of an earlier court case in which the U.S. Supreme Court in 2012 had ruled that the law was constitutional 
because that penalty was part of Congress's legitimate taxing power. Hmm. So the new opponents who have brought this lawsuit are arguing that without this penalty, there is no more tax. And they're saying the reason that the Supreme Court upheld the law several years earlier is no longer applicable. So after these Republican-led states brought this case to basically dismantle Obamacare, what's been happening next? Well, that case went first before a district judge in Texas who in December of this past year ruled that the plaintiffs in this case, the Republican-led states, were right. And he uh, issued an opinion saying that the entire law was now unconstitutional. Big deal. So the people on the other side of the case who are trying to preserve the law, Democratic attorneys general, they appealed to an appellate court. So the latest live action took place last week in a courtroom in New Orleans, where a three-judge panel of the uh, U.S. Circuit Court for the Fifth Circuit uh, heard arguments uh, aloud from both sides of the case. So you have these Republican states that are trying to argue that that Obamacare is no longer legal, and then you have these Democratic states that are saying, no, it absolutely is, and they're trying to defend it. Where does the Trump administration fall on this? Normally, the executive branch of the government, any president and his Justice Department, would defend an existing federal statute. But just about a year ago, the Trump administration announced something that was quite unusual. The Justice Department said that it was not going to defend this law in court, in this lawsuit. So even though it is it is a federal law, they're just going to basically abandon it and say, like, we actually don't care if this law continues to exist. More than that, they are arguing in court on the same side as the Republican-led states that are trying to get rid of the law. So the Trump administration is doing two things at once. The Health and Human Services Department, which oversees most of the ACA, they're continuing to enforce the law, while the Justice Department, a few agencies over, is trying to persuade this court that the law should no longer exist. So where is the case now and what's going to be happening next? Sometime in the next few months, the panel of appeals court judges is going to issue its opinion. It was interesting to be in the courtroom in New Orleans on Tuesday because this three-judge panel is made up of two judges who were appointed by Republican presidents, one by uh, President George W. Bush and one just last year by President Trump. He's one of the newest members of this appeals court. The third judge is a longtime judge who was appointed by President Jimmy Carter. She did not say anything during these oral arguments. She was just listening. Hmm. And it was just the two Republican appointees on the court who were asking lots and lots of questions. The Trump appointee was asking questions just of the Democratic-led states and their lawyers who are trying to get this law preserved. The Bush appointee was a little more even-handed, asking a lot of questions of the Democratic side trying to get the law upheld, but also some questions of the Republican attorneys. So what did that indicate to you about where the court might come down on this? Well, I'm a very bad prophet of any kind, including a legal prophet, and it's a dangerous practice to try to predict where any court is going to come out on any case. 
But I've got to say, listening for a little more than 90 minutes to these oral arguments, the questioning seemed a little more pointed when it was directed at the Democratic side, uh, those trying to uphold the law. Hmm. Uh, There were a lot of questions about, well, if this tax penalty is now gone, isn't this law now unconstitutional? And that, of course, is the argument that the Republican opponents challenging the law want this court to absorb. So if this court in Louisiana does decide to rule that, that, that the Affordable Care Act is unconstitutional, what happens next? Well, that could be the end of things, but there's always the Supreme Court hanging out in Washington. Whoever loses at the appellate level might take this case back to the Supreme Court for a third time. So if the Affordable Care Act is struck down as unconstitutional, how would that play out politically? Because on the one hand, this is something that President Trump campaigned on, right? Wanting to bring down Obamacare. But on the other hand, there are many parts of of Obamacare that are very popular, and it's just become entrenched in American life. Like, this is just part of how our healthcare system works. It's complicated, isn't it? (laughs) What I've come to think after talking with a lot of political and legal experts on both sides of the partisan divide is that this actually could be a little bit tricky for the Republican Party if they, quote, won this case. They would be big winners in the sense that this law they've been trying to, one way or another, get to go away for nearly a decade could, depending on what the higher courts ultimately do, be gone. But that leaves the immediate question, well, what happens now? There are more than 20 million people in this country who have gotten health insurance uh, through this law. If you think back to 2017, Congress tried, a Republican-led Congress with a then-new Republican president called Trump, tried for most of that year to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act. They couldn't do it. They tried and they tried and they tried. So you would have the Republicans who had fought to have this law overturned in the courts having succeeded legally, but then they would have in their laps the question of what to do with all these people who suddenly lost health insurance, what to do with people who have any kind of private health insurance who had lost some of the consumer protections that are the most popular parts of this law. This would be right in the middle of a presidential election, 2020, big congressional elections in 2020, in which the Democrats, you can imagine, would gleefully say to the Republicans, you're the ones who are harming health care for the American public. What are you going to do about it? And at least up until now, the Republicans have not been able to figure out legislatively an answer to what to do about it. Amy Goldstein is a national healthcare policy writer at The Washington Post. And now, one more thing. Next year, skateboarding will make its debut at the Olympics. And the future of the sport might sound like this. 
Skateboarding is kind of like my happy place. Huh. Like a, it's kind of like a pr- playground for me. <laughs> <laughs> so Sky Brown is a 10-year-old skateboarder. She's aiming to become the youngest competitor at next summer's Olympics in Tokyo. Rick Mace is a sports reporter for The Post. He met up with Sky, who's hoping to land a spot on Team Britain. Because it's the first time that skateboarding will be at the Olympics, there's no age restriction on who can compete. If she was a swimmer or a sprinter or a volleyball player, she wouldn't be uh, eligible to compete. Because she's a skateboarder, there are no such restrictions. So as a 10-year-old, or I guess she'll be 12 at the time, she would actually be eligible to compete in Tokyo. So you don't feel like nervous or, or anxious or scared at all when you're in there? Even when no. there's a crowd? No, I don't really get nervous. It's interesting looking at Sky because outside of the bowl, she just looks like any other 10-year-old with a skateboard, and you really don't know what to expect. All right, here we go. Sky Brown. So we went to the Dew Tour stop in Long Beach, California. Frontside disaster on that. The first Olympic qualifying event in the United States, and Sky was competing there for the first time, and mostly against girls that were twice her age or, or much older. Ten years old, can you believe it or not? What? What? Are you kidding? A 540 flat spin under coping. But then once she kind of gets on her board and starts going in the bowl, she'll ride up the sides and she'll fly in the air and she can, you know, do the twists and turns just like the rest of them. Even though she's only 10, Sky comes across as wise beyond her years. You know, she just doesn't want to compete at the Olympics because it's something to do or fun to do or she'd be on TV. She kind of is competing with, with the message and a platform. And what she kind of told us was that... I'm be the youngest one out there to, like, show the girls. It doesn't matter how big you are, how small you are. You can do anything. And, like, if they watch me, like, skate or, like, do this, like, trick, they'll think maybe they can do it, too. So for the past several years, the Olympic organizers have made a concerted push to kind of attract a younger audience. And they've been adding these new sports, things like surfing and rock climbing. In that sense, a competitor like Sky Brown is important to them because she can really showcase what these new sports can do and hopefully reach a younger audience that might not typically tune into the Olympics. Here, like, there's getting more little girls and it's just really cool to see all the girls rip and skate. Rick Mace is a sports reporter for The Washington Post. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the stories in this episode by heading to postreports.com and join the conversation online using the hashtag postreports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. 